Well, Paul in 1 Timothy has been given to Timothy to pass on the priorities of a healthy local church. That's been Paul's purpose in 1 Timothy. It's actually his purpose in 2 Timothy and in the book of Titus. Thus they're called the pastoral epistles. But actually Paul is not giving his own counsel here. Paul is giving to Timothy God's appointed counsel, God's command for how the local church is to live and minister together. There's a big difference, right? There's a major difference between man's ideas and what God says is to be happening in His church. If you'll remember, Paul has given the qualifications for those who would be the, the overseers, uh, the elders, the pastors, the shepherds of the local church. He also gave us the qualifications Excuse me, for those who would be the servants of the local church, the deacons in the life of the local church. He gave us the qualifications for both of those. Now, now Paul turns to, to focus on the church itself. Paul tells what the local church is. If you don't underline your Bible, and you think that's a sacrilegious thing, I, I'd ask you to reconsider today. This may be a passage you at least want to put a dot by and go back to many, many times. He turns his focus to the local church. He gives us a glimpse of the glory that is to be the local church. Paul tells us what it is to be God's people in a particular location. What it is to be God's people at Redbud Baptist Church. Paul calls us to contemplate. By contemplate, I mean to think deeply and consider the church and to contemplate the Christ of the church. Um, There are a lot of things in life that we would label as important, and rightly so, right? Family, children, job, career, education. Those things are important, right? And rightly so, we would label them as being important. But I often wonder if the local church gets mentioned among God's people as being one of those most important things. I'd probably go on record and say, if you had a hundred conversations, you might be fortunate to get one person who would even bring it up. If you were asked, you, if you were asked, do you think the church is important and why, what would you say? If someone came to you and said, we're doing a survey, we're talking to uh, people who go to church, which is, I'll talk about that in a minute, how unbiblical to say that is of going to church. Not that I don't want you coming, don't misunderstand that, but we're going to talk about that in a minute, what that means. If you were asked, do you think the local church is important and why, what would you say? Some of you right now, the hard drive's clicking, right? You're, what would I say? You ever had one of those questions? You're like, get back to me later. I've got to think about that. And that would probably be a good thing to do, to, to think and contemplate that. What if I were to answer that question with this? I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the most important force in the world today. Its mission is more important than all the governments and universities of the world combined. There is nothing to which we can compare it. Would that be the answer you'd give to somebody? Uh, Probably not. 
you might be have to say, that's a pretty strong statement. I think, Preacher, you may be a little over the top there. If that's what you're saying, then that clarifies what I was saying earlier. We don't know how important the church is. Why, why would I make such a statement? I say that because the most significant, the most important event in human history was when the living God took on human flesh and lived among us as the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our sins. And since He ascended back into heaven, His church now reveals Him on earth even as He revealed God when He was on earth. That's what we are. We're revealing God to the world just like Jesus did when He was here. So here's the main idea. If you're looking at your handout, main idea, the church is important because of its mission and its confession. That's what Paul's giving us here. He's going to give us the, the mission of the church. He's not going to exhaustively give us the mission, but he's going to give us the main thing that we're to be doing, the mission of the church. He's also going to give us the confession of the church. If you're looking at your handout, I had a hard time narrowing it down this week, so you got a little extra. This is kind of like an application based on that main idea. The church is the family of God. Thus the family has the obligation to live in agreement with and to affirm the truth of the gospel. We have an obligation. We're obligated. We profess Christ. We have an obligation to live in agreement with and to affirm the gospel. So if you're looking at your handout there, we see in verses 14 through 15, the mission of the local church. The mission of the local church. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Which is... This is critical. The church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul tells us here his purpose. I think you've heard me say this several times. This is Paul's purpose statement for writing 1 Timothy. And what is that purpose? I'm writing these things to you so that, there it is, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul writes so that we'll know how to live for Jesus in the context of of the local church. If you'll remember, Paul started out in chapter 1 by telling the church what the goal of teaching of doctrine was. And then what the role of the law is in the Christian life. And then how to pray and for whom to pray. And male and female roles in the local church. And then he gave us the qualifications again for pastors and deacons. But at the heart of his concern in writing about all these things in chapters 1, 2, and 3... And listen, even the things he's going to write about in chapters 4, 5, and 6, at the heart of his concern is how the local church will live in light of these important truths. Do you see that? Here's these things in 1, 2, and 3. Here's these things in 4, 5, and 6. And right in the middle, Paul says, that's us, the church. And this is us. This is how important we are based on these things I'm talking about and what's coming. Paul says in verse 15 there, Notice he says, if I delay. In other words, Timothy and church, in case I don't get there, I'm sending these instructions in place of me. Paul is preparing Timothy and the church for the possibility that he might not get there. Just in case, Timothy, I don't come. Here's what you need to do. Paul's expectation is that when Timothy, uh, the pastor, passes along to uh, the church God's instruction, 
They'll view them with the same authority as if Paul were there. That's what he's saying. Just because I'm not there, here's God's commands for you. Just because I'm not there, these are still God's words. God's words. They're not mere suggestions, is what Paul's saying. They're they're the absolute truth for our faith and practice. And the truth cannot be abandoned. It can't be dismissed. Listen, without suffering consequences. You're saying, Paul's saying all that? I think so. He's saying, we cannot abandon these things. If we do, there are severe consequences. Look again at verse 15. What What is that truth? Paul says it's the truth that the local church is the household of God. Paul says it's the truth that the local church is the household of God. You want to know how important the local church is. God says we are His, what? Household. (coughs) That word household can mean either a dwelling place, a house, or an immediate family. Thus the word household. And both meanings are applied to the church in Scripture. Both give important witness to the source and the significance of the church. Now, if Paul used the word household in the sense of a dwelling place, then it would testify to the fact that God Himself does what? Lives in and among His church. If we're a house, if we're a dwelling place, and we're what? The house of God, then God what? Lives in. His presence is among His people in His church. The church itself is the house of God. It's His representation upon the the earth to, to a watching world. But I also want you to listen carefully. Paul's figure of speech here is not talking about a building. The church is not the building we're sitting in at this moment. Instead, Paul is referring to a family. That's what he means by this word household. I'm going to substantiate that argument here in a minute. Here's the question I have for you. Does your family cease to be family just because you're not in the house together? No. If your house is gone tomorrow... Your family's still intact. You're still a family. Because the house is gone doesn't mean the family's gone, right? So Paul's not talking about a building here. You may recall as a child, and I do more than once, you may recall when you might have ran in the sanctuary and some adult said, no running in the sanctuary. This is the... Go ahead, say it. House of God, right? Like I said, I had that said to me more than once. But this is a misuse of that term. Because the term does not refer to a building at all. Now children, don't go home and tell your mom and daddy, you can't tell me not to run the house of God again. Don't say the preacher said that. That wouldn't be the truth. How can we be so sure that that word household is referring to the idea of a family and not a building? Well, look... In chapter 3, verse 4. Here's what I want to tell you. When you're looking at a word in Scripture and you're wondering, what does the writer mean with this word here? A good way to help you understand it is to look what comes before it and what comes after it. Because he probably uses it in the same sense in every occasion. In other words, you find your meaning based on the context of what he's writing, all of what he's writing. So look at chapter 3, verse 4. He, 
Talking about the pastors, the elders, the overseers must manage his what? His own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now do you think that means that he's to manage his physical structure of his house? He should keep it up. But is that what that's talking about? No, it's talking about his what? His family and his responsibilities. Look at verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, there again, his family, the responsibility that he's been given, if he can't manage that, what does it say about someone who's going to be the leader of the church? If he can't do that, then how can he care for what? God's church. Not the building, but what? The family, the people of God that he's been given to shepherd. Look at verse 12. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, manning their children and their what? Household. You take that, you put that together with children, and it means his what? His family. Not his physical structure that he lives in, but his family. So that word household, based on these verses and what may come after, tells us that this is not talking about a physical structure. It's talking about a collection of people in a family. Those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ are saved into a family. Now at the end of each worship gathering, what do we sing? Family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the building that we're in today. No. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, for I am part of the family of God. The local church, Red Bud Baptist Church, is the family of God in this location. That's who you are. So you can't identify yourself with a particular structure. We are a family. We are the people of God. We are God's family. Now here's my question for you as as a way of applying this. Do you think of the local church as the family of God? Do you think that way? When someone comes to you and says, what is the church? Tell me what you think of the church. Now you can go, what? We're we're the household. We're the family of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that's who we are. We're not a building. We are people. Do you think of this local church? Do you think of this place, Red Bud Baptist Church, as the family of God? Do you think of it that way? Or is this just a place you show up on Sundays and then you leave and you never give it another thought until the next Sunday or maybe the next Sunday or the Sunday after that or whenever you choose to come back? That's exactly what the Holy Spirit means here in verse 15. We are the family of God. When someone asks me on Monday, what did you do yesterday? I don't say, I went to church. I don't say that. I say, I went to worship with my church family. Is that what we do? Did we go to church? No, we went to worship with our church family. We went to worship with the people of God. We Christians, we don't go to church on Sunday. We gather for worship with our spiritual family. And... Don't misunderstand me. I don't want you going, I can't say I'm going to church again no more. The preacher said I shouldn't say that. You need to think about what you're saying. Does it make sense to say I'm going to church or I'm going to worship with my spiritual family tomorrow? Which is more correct according to the Bible? I'm going to worship tomorrow with my 
spiritual family. Parents, tell your children on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, we're going to worship with the family of God today. Start them young, teaching them what it means to gather with the people of God. Paul wrote in order to tell of the importance of the right behavior in the church. He wrote so that God's people would know how to conduct themselves as members of the God's family. If overseers and deacons are required to have their household in order, and they are, right? Then how much more does God's own household need to be in order? It's not just the pastors and the deacons that need to have it in order. It's what? All of us need to have in order. Paul's primary concern in writing 1 Timothy is that the local church would live in light of this enormous truth. And can I say it again? Red Blood Baptist Church, you are the household of God. You are the family of God. I'm writing to you, Paul says, because I want you to understand you are God's family. You are God's people. Another way of applying that, as members of God's family, you don't act like unbelievers in the world. You do not follow the world. You are the household of God, and that changes everything. Most of us act a certain way because of the family that we're in, right? That has an effect on how we live. Being a part of the family of God should have an effect on how we live. Paul said, I'm writing to you so you'll know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. Here's what I would say to you as a Christian today. Do you have a proper view of and a love for the local church? Do you appreciate what the church really is? And I'll go back to what I said earlier. The church is not like any other thing that you can become a member of. It is completely different from anything you'll ever become a member of. Look once again, verse 15. The household of God, which is what? The church of the living God. Notice one little word there, not that you dismiss the others, but notice the word of. Of the living God. That is a possessive prepositional phrase. The living God's church. That's who you are. The living God. You're His family. Paul doesn't simply say the church of God, but rather the church of the what? The living God. That is the church, the people of God, the called out ones. Not the building is a place where the living God actually dwells and is at work. We, collectively, individually, but as a corporate body, we are the presence of God. We're the place where the God lives and dwells and He's at work. Did you hear that? We are the dwelling place of the living God. That will affect how we live, right? That's what Paul's saying here. This will affect how we conduct ourselves as the people of God. We are the place of the living God, the church, the local church, the family of God. Red Bud Baptist Church is where God lives and dwells, and it's where He manifests His presence to this community. Castellia Baptist Church, up to 561 and out White Level Road to White Level Baptist Church and back 561 to Wood. You know what's in between there? The family of God at Red Bud Baptist Church. We're the presence of God in this community. Man, that ought to change the way we look at things, shouldn't it? 
me give you some more application here. Because of that, we need to realize that the church is not ours, it's God's. And therefore, it's not our opinion that matters, it's God. God's house belongs to God. And He says, here's the way it's supposed to go. We need to realize that the church is not ours, it's God's. Quoting one commentator I read says the following, So many of the problems in the local church churches today that hinder its mission would be solved if we would simply realize that we are God's family. We're not our own. We belong to Him. The church is not ours. It's His. Do you hear what he said? A lot of the problems in our church would get solved. I'm not saying our church. He said our churches, the church, and a church would be solved if we could come to this realization that the church is God's and it's not ours. Secondly, consider how significant this makes our weekly gathering. The church gathers, and the Lord, the living God, is where? He's among us. We are His family, worshiping in His presence, listening to His Word, singing to Him, and praying. How awesome is the privilege of being in the place of God's presence? You do that individually because the Spirit lives within you in your Monday through Saturday. But when you gather here, we're all here together. We're God's family. The presence of God is among us and He calls us here to do what? Worship Him. That would affect how we come into this place. That would affect our attitude on Saturday night. That would affect our attitude on Sunday morning when we're coming here to worship with the family of God. Thirdly, that means the people of God must be involved in His church. You don't have the option of not being involved. Think about that family, biological family. Particularly those of you who live in large families and you were raised in a time period where everybody in the family worked, right? This is yes. You're going, you have no idea. You're right, but I've heard your stories. I've heard your stories. What happened? What did daddy do if one member of the family decided they weren't going to work? Don't say it out loud. Right? Everybody had a job to do. Everybody had a responsibility. Everybody got involved, right? Somebody didn't stay at home and sit on the couch. And Well, you might not have had a TV back there, but my point is, you understand, right? Everybody got involved in the family. And that's what it is in the church. The people of God are involved. You don't have the option of not being involved. Verse 15. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Man, there is a lot going on here. A pillar... You think about when you when you think pillar, what do you think? It's a stru- it upholds the structure, right? Kind of like there's two out here on the porch, small pillars, but they do what? They they hold up the structure. You, you have to understand when Paul wrote this letter to the original audience, the church at Ephesus. They lived in the city of Ephesus, and in that city, there was a temple to the goddess Diana. That temple had 127 pillars that held it up. What do you think went through their mind when he says, you, the church, are a pillar of the truth? They visualized that temple, right? And they thought, my, how important is those pillars in holding that structure up? 
the word buttress. has the idea of being the foundation on which a structure rests. It speaks of stability and permanence. And notice that the church is what? The pillar and buttress of the truth. You're what holds it up. You are the foundation on which that truth is put. Truth here refers to the revelation of God in His Word. It refers to the truth of the Gospel. That's what it's referring to. You church, we church, or what? We, what? We, we hold that up. We support that. <coughs> what we have here is a description, again, about the church. God's Word says that the local church, God's Word says that we, Red Bud Baptist Church, is a place God has appointed, again in this community, to be the means of spreading and protecting the truth of God. The local church, we, Red Bud have the privilege and responsibility of preserving and passing on God's Word. Listen to me. Not just the parts we like, but all of it. Jesus said, make disciples, teaching them to obey what? All that I have commanded. We have the responsibility of preserving the truth, of defending the truth against false teaching. We have the privilege and responsibility of proclaiming God's Word. And so we... Red Bud Baptist Church want God's truth, God's Word to shine so that this community and the world will see and hear the only true God. And it's not just our words, right? But it's also what our actions and how we behave ourselves in the family of God. We can talk all day long, right? But how we live can contradict that. Here's why this is so important. The church is the one institution that God has promised that He'll preserve throughout all time. Read your Bible. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. That will take you a while, and then you come back and you argue with me about that. It's the one institution God has promised to preserve throughout all of time. The church will always endure. It will always succeed. Why will it always endure and succeed? Because we're what? The family of God. The family of God never goes away. The church will always endure. It will always succeed. What I said, listen carefully, applies to the universal church. I don't want to insult your intelligence. By universal church, I mean all believers everywhere throughout all time are the universal church. What I said applies to the universal church, but it does not necessarily apply to every local church. The church, universal, will endure. It will succeed, but not every local church will do so. Why is that? A local church will not endure. It will not succeed if it does not carry out its responsibility of being the pillar and buttress of the truth. When the church fails to uphold the truth, all the truth, God will not let that church continue. He will not let it succeed. So here's the application. You might be going, so what? What does this mean for us? More important, what does this mean for you as an individual believer? What does this mean for the individual church member? It means that you should direct energy and effort toward the edification and growth of the family of God. That's why it takes getting involved, right? You can't help build up and help the growth of the church if you're on the outside watching. 
There's a lot more to being a church member than just having your name on the membership roll. The local church is important. Being a church member is important. It means that if a person claims to be a believer, they cannot separate themselves from the other members. Remember, it's a family, right? You can't separate yourself from the family. How can someone claim God as Father and have no interest in being a part of His family? Explain that to me. God is my Father, but the rest of them, I have nothing to do with them. It means that if a person claims to be a believer, they can't separate themselves from the other members of the church. One of the primary evidences of being born again, listen carefully, one of the primary evidences of being born again is a desire to worship God with His people in the corporate worship gathering. There is a desire, if you belong to Jesus, to gather with His people. So what's the other side of that coin? If you don't gather, there must not be a desire for the people of God. Therefore, that person may not really be a part of the family of God. And I want to clarify. Do we miss occasionally? Sure. I missed the last couple of weeks. But there ought to be a consistent desire of wanting to gather and worship with the people of God. Verse 16. First we saw the mission of God, and then in verse 16 we see the confession of the church. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What do we confess as a church? We uphold the truth. We're a pillar. We're a buttress. We uphold that truth. Notice the word, we confess. Some of you have translations that have the words without controversy or common confession. The idea is that we, the church, are you ready? We say the same thing. You can't have one church in one location saying this about Jesus and one church in another location saying something else about Jesus. We say the same thing. There's a truth upon which the church of the living God agrees. It is the unanimous agreed conviction of all true believers. And what is that truth? Great indeed is the mystery of Godliness. Now, when the Bible uses that word mystery, it's not referring to something that's unsolved. Okay? But to something that was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. Once it was hidden, but now it's been revealed. In the Bible, the mystery is the secret plan of God's redemption, which is no longer secret because God has now made it known. What is that? Go back and you read the Old Testament, right? You get to verse 15 to chapter 3, and God says, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. You get to Genesis chapter 12, and God tells Abraham that through you, I will do what? Bless the families of the earth, which means that through Abraham, through his descendants, someone is going to come who's going to bless the families of the earth. How many families of the earth? All the families, all the nations, all the peoples. Someone is coming in the Old Testament, right? We don't know who it is, but when we get to Matthew, what does Matthew say? Here he is. It's no longer a secret anymore. That mystery has now been revealed. And what that mystery of godliness refers to is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus is God revealing Himself to sinful man. That's the mystery of godliness. Jesus, God, becomes a man. No one can know God 
by human reason alone, but only through the revelation that God's given of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And secondly, that the mystery of godliness refers to us. God's household, God's people, His church. We are the mystery of godliness. Why are we the mystery of godliness? Because we're indwelt by Jesus and we do what? We reflect Him to the world. Can I tell you something in case you hadn't figured it out? We are a special bunch of people. Not because of what our name is or who our biological family is, but because of who we are as God's people. That's why we're special. The rest of verse 16 is the confession of the church. Our confession about Jesus. Notice here, He was manifested in the flesh. God the Son, Jesus, has always existed. In John's Gospel, when he begins the Gospel, his Gospel, what is it he says? In the beginning was the Word. The word, Word, is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. And then he what? In verse 14, And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested in the flesh. God Himself. God, the Son, became the God-man. Jesus, fully God and fully man, lived and died in the flesh. It was a real body that was nailed to the cross. It was a real body that was punished for our sin. It was a real body that was wrapped and laid in a tomb. God. Think about it, folks. God appeared in a body, a body in which He was crucified, dead, and buried. God did that for us. But the good news of the Gospel keeps going. Vindicated by the Spirit. You can write the word resurrection out by that. That's what that's talking about. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated means to justify or to to declare righteous. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. In other words... The sinless Jesus who was made to be sin and treated as though He were sin by God the Father on our account, He paid in full. He satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus took God's wrath until there was nothing left. And having satisfied God's wrath, what did God do? He raised Him from the dead to declare to the entire world that He is the righteous one. He is the only acceptable sacrifice. He is the only one who can secure salvation for lost sinners. That's what you and I proclaim, church. Thirdly, look, He was seen by angels. This may refer to Jesus being seen by angels at the tomb on the day of resurrection. Or, it may be His being seen by angels when He ascended back into glory. Either way, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying from an earthly perspective... And a heavenly perspective, this Jesus is without equal. He's unmatched. That's what he's saying. Fourth, proclaimed among the nations. What was the command that Jesus gave to his disciples, his church, after the resurrection? Jesus was clear that the message of salvation was not just for the Jews, but for who? All the nations. So therefore Jesus said what? 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. What is he saying? He was proclaimed on among the nations. He will be proclaimed among the nations. So therefore we what? We go. We as a church have only one message for all people. And that message is Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. That's what we proclaim. So the huge question is, how can we keep this good news to ourselves? How is that possible? How is it that we have such good news proclaimed and we keep our mouths shut? I ask myself, how is that possible that I keep my mouth shut when I have the best news in the world? How is it I do that? Back in December, we, were, uh, we, we, we flew home for Christmas and our flight home uh, was broken up. We flew from uh, Raleigh to Charlotte, changed planes, went from Charlotte to Chattanooga. On the, on the leg from Raleigh to Charlotte, Debbie and I sat together. For some reason, Charlotte to Chattanooga, that wasn't the case. They separated us. Well, that didn't make her happy. She was near the front and I was kind of near the back. I wasn't real happy about it. And I was sitting there and the plane kept filling up, filling up. And the seat was empty. And I'm thinking, it's going to stay empty and we can switch. I didn't more get that thought out of my mind and the girl sits down in the seat right beside me. I'm thinking, okay. And they come on the intercom and say, there's going to be a delay in our takeoff because we've overfueled the plane and it's overweight. You know, you know what goes through your mind? You don't say it out loud, but you're like, I know what that means. They said it'll take about 20 minutes. Well, they failed to tell us it takes 20 minutes for the truck to get there and then 20 minutes to take the fuel off. So it was 45 minutes later. So in 45 minutes, me and a girl named Mindy, man, she was chatty Cathy. I mean, she was, I think she was nervous. She's sitting next to a strange man. She was just I thought, is she ever going to breathe? Is it just <laughs> finally, you know, I, I kind of get a word in every now and then, and I'm asking her what she does, and she works at a, a hospital in Chattanooga. She's a recreational therapist for children. And so, you know, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and I'm thinking, I know why we got delayed now. Because once we got in the air, she put her headphones on. It was over with. But we were delayed for 45 minutes. And she finally stopped to take a deep breath, and I cut her off. I said, Mindy, you've told me a lot about you. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Well, it's like the deer in the headlights. You know, they, She looks at me. She says, I'm a Christian. I anticipated that. She said, I'm a Catholic. She says, but I believe whatever's true for you is true for you, and I believe whatever's true for me is true for me. Well, that just contradicts the fact she's a Christian right off the bat. And so she goes through this spiel about truth and truth and I'm listening and when she gets done so I says you believe there's no absolute truth she says that's right I said do you believe that's an absolute true statement she looked at me she says it don't matter how I answer that question I'm wrong right and I said yes I said wouldn't you want to know the truth if you didn't know the truth wouldn't you want to know if you were wrong wouldn't you want someone to tell you and she said well, that's kind of logical. I said, how about let me tell you the truth? So I shared the gospel with her. 
Now, she didn't repent and trust Christ. But here's the, the, the interesting thing about that. When I started, it got deathly quiet on that plane. Which meant two people behind me, two people in front of me, two people over here, two people over here were hearing the gospel. And I could see one guy across the aisle every now and then he'd lean over and he would look at me and make eye contact. I dare say half the plane heard the gospel. Nobody repented and trusted Christ that I know of. But I told her, I said, you live in Chattanooga? She says, yes. I says, when you get home, I want you to go to church. No, I want you to go. Well, I couldn't tell her to go worship the family of God because she's not a part of the family of God. But I did tell her to go to church. And I said, you can go to Brainerd Baptist Church. I know the pastor, Micah Freeze. You can go to church there. She said, you know what? I work with a girl that goes to that church. I said, guess what? You go into work, you tell her tomorrow that you want to go to church with her. She said, I'll do that. Now, whether she does or not, I don't know. But God orchestrated that. There was a delay. But God put that person there and was able to share the gospel with her. Proclaimed among the nations. Notice next. Believed on in the world. There's the promise that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will trust Jesus. There's a promise. Notice it says believed on in the world. There's universal proclamation, yes, but there's also worldwide trust in Jesus. Those 114,000 people living in the Sahara Desert, the Regibot, guess what? Some of them, maybe all of them, are going to come to know Jesus. But somebody's got to do what? They've got to go tell them. We the church, listen, if you miss everything I've said, you hear this. We the church are guaranteed that if we share Jesus, there will be people who believe. We're guaranteed if we share the gospel, there's going to be people who believe. Not everybody, but somebody is going to believe. How many of you like that promise? How many of you ever get guarantees that you can just, you can throw it all in and say, I believe that. We're guaranteed if we share the gospel, there'll be people who believe. I told Mindy and I'll tell you here today that have never trusted in Christ. It's as simple as that. That's what I told her. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's that simple. Believe in Jesus and your sin will be washed away and you'll stand righteous in the sight of God. Jesus died and rose for sinners like me and like you. And listen, lost person, He's calling you today to trust Him. No one's here by accident today. It's a divine appointment that you're here today. And some of you need to surrender to the gospel today. Some of you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Notice, lastly, taken up in glory. Having atoned for sinners, having been raised in victory... God exalted Jesus to the place of kingly rule, lordship, and authority. He was taken up in glory. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, crowned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all. Jesus, hanging on the cross, despised and rejected by men, despised by all that saw Him. Here He is now seated as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's inviting you, come into my Church, that's our Savior. How can we not live? How can we fail to be the pillar and the buttress of truth? How can we fail to do that? How is it that we can allow people who profess Christ and live in complete opposition to that truth? 
How can we fail to confess? How do we do that? And I know that there's some of you here today as Christians. This is who I'm talking to. And you're saying, you just don't understand my situation. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm up against. There's no way I can overcome this in living a godly life. Paul, here inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, let me show you Jesus. This is the power that's at work in you. The one who was revealed in the flesh, the one who was vindicated in the Spirit, the one who was seen by angels, the one who was proclaimed in the world, the one who was believed on in the world, the one who was taken up into glory. You know what? He lives in you. Don't tell me your circumstances and you can't overcome those through Christ and live for Him and proclaim the Gospel. He lives in you. Paul is saying the one who is the mystery of Godliness, the one whom you've been united to by faith, He's so much greater than any circumstance you face in your life. He's so much greater than any habit of sin that hinders you. He's so much greater than any obstacle in your personal life, in your family life, in your work life, in your community life. In whatever aspect of your life, He's so much greater than that. There's nothing that His power is not able to overcome in your life if you know Christ. Let's pray.